0: Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Trita Parsi, who is an award-winning author and the 2010 recipient of the Graemeier Award for Ideas Improving World Order. He is the founder and president of the National Iranian-American Council and an expert on U.S.-Iranian relations, Iranian foreign politics, and the geopolitics of the Middle East. His latest book, Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy, reveals the -the behind-the-scenes story to the historic nuclear deal with Iran. Trita Parsi, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. Uh, Is this deal now under threat?
1: Oh, it certainly is under threat. We have uh, an unfortunate situation with the Trump administration essentially indicating that the spectrum of the debate within the Trump administration is no more than between those who want to quit the deal right away and those who want to do it in a more sophisticated way so that they reduce the cost of quitting the deal, but not, there's no voices inside that are really arguing that this deal is working and we are actually better off with it.
0: Stories I've seen about Trump wanting someone to find some way to claim that Iran was violating the deal, even if it wasn't, uh, is that the, is that the sophisticated approach?
1: That uh, is the sophisticated approach. Uh, the aim is to make sure that the United States essentially has the ability of getting out of this deal and shift the blame to the Iranians so that the Iranians will pay the cost of it. And that is called a sophisticated approach. And it's only sophisticated because the alternative that the Trump administration is looking at is so profoundly unsophisticated.
0: Which is to simply throw it out.
1: Throw it out. Uh, I mean, those voices who argued for that thought that if this ends up really upsetting the Europeans, that's just an added bonus.
0: Where's Iran What do Iranians think, both the Iranian government and the Iranian public of this deal?
1: So the public uh, was tremendously supportive of the deal and remain supportive of the deal but are very, very disappointed in feeling that the deal has not ended up working the way that they had anticipated that the sanctions will be lifted in, in a much more efficient manner, and now seeing how Trump is uh, working to undermine the deal and, and to make it even more difficult for businesses to go back to Iran, uh, you clearly see that people are disappointed. It hasn't turned into a situation in which people think it's better to withdraw from the deal, but it has definitely hurt the view of the United States and Iran, uh, and it has helped the hardliners in Iran who throughout this process made the argument we can strike a deal with iran with the us but rest assured you cannot trust the us the us will not live up to its end of the bargain
0: did people originally support it so much primarily because the alternative was was us threats of war and so much worse because it it doesn't seem like a great deal it doesn't seem like the sort of deal that's opposed, that, that's imposed on any other countries on earth it seems rather unfair to iran
1: I actually think it was a good deal for Iran, because at the end of the day, the key things the Iranians wanted was to get recognized that they're going to have an enrichment program. They're not going to give up what they believe is their sovereign right. And secondly, um, make sure that there would be sanctions relief. But the third unstated uh, consequence of this is perhaps the most important one for the Iranians, which is that this deal ended Iran's isolation, Iran became um, an accepted uh, party and recognized as a major power in the region. Those are the things that the Trump administration are most objecting to and are walking back on. Those were not written into the deal, of course, but they were an unstated consequence of the deal. Those things were important for the Iranian public as a whole. and, and, as a result, they did feel that this was a good deal for them. I mean, people were dancing in the streets in Iran when the deal was struck. but that was not the case in the u s
0: and, and is Iran complying with the deal? We, we certainly are seeing the u s. ambassador to the u n and uh, and the White House uh, saying otherwise.
1: Sorry, could you repeat the last
0: part? Is Iran, in fact, complying with the deal? Uh, we're hearing accusations of... Yes, the
1: Iranians, uh, uh, the IAEA inspects the deal and is responsible for making sure that every party is living up to their deal and, and reporting on that. And so far they've issued eight reports, all of them saying that the Iranians are living up to the end of the bargain. Uh,
0: and yet we're seeing new... Sanctions legislation, uh, including uh, sanctions against uh, Russia and North Korea and Iran, all packaged together, Uh, what is the justification?
1: The justification um, from the congressional side, of course, is that they don't really need much of a justification to impose sanctions on Iran. They'll do that in their sleep. But the main um, official pretext that is provided is that uh, Iran is still engaged in regional activity that the United States objects to. That is not to say that Iran are, is not doing that. The reason why I say that it's more of a pretext is because at the end of the day, Saudi Arabia is engaged in far, far more problematic behavior in the region, uh, and the United States is continuing to not only deal with the Saudis, but Trump went to Saudi Arabia, said that there would be no criticism of Saudi Arabia, and then signed a deal to have $110, 000, $110 billion of weapons sold to Saudi Arabia. The most destabilizing event of the Middle East in the last 30 years was the invasion of Iraq. The Iranians have done a lot of bad things in the region, and they have done things that destabilized it, but there's nothing they have done that has been even close to as destabilizing as the invasion of Iraq was, which was conducted by the United States.
0: Uh, And when you say that they gained recognition uh, as a leader in the region, uh, what what does that mean?
1: Um, not as a leader, but recognition as, as a major power in the region. Because up until that point, the United States pursued a policy of containing and excluding Iran from every political forum. When there were negotiations about Syria, the Iranians were not there, which is part of the reason why those negotiations didn't go anywhere. So the Iranians were essentially an, an, an unaccepted entity in the region. They were excluded from the regional decision-making table. Um, and it was a critical thing for them to be able to regain a seat at that table. This is what they call decontainment. That's been an overwhelming objective of the Iranians for the last 20 or so years.
0: And, and what has been the, the economic impact in Iran of, of all the sanctions uh, and on uh, the flip side of, of the deal having been put through?
1: Well, the economic effects of the sanctions early on were quite devastating for the Iranians. The Iranians economy suffered tremendously under these sanctions. Uh, At one point, uh, the Iranian currency dropped 30% in less than three days uh, as a result of the sanctions. The lifting of the sanctions has not had the anticipated effects on the economy. Um, Oil sales have done quite well for the Iranian but they have had a great difficulty attracting businesses back into Iran particularly investments and investments are needed in order to create jobs not just make sure that there's more money pumped into the economy and part of the reason why businesses have not come is because a lot of businesses are very worried that the United States is going to walk out of the deal and that sanctions will be reimposed it would be very costly for them to go back into Iran and then end up getting kicked out again as a result of U.S. sanctions coming back into effect.
0: Yeah, we're we're speaking with Trita Parsi, whose uh, latest book is Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran and the Triumph of Diplomacy, and who is the president of the National Iranian American Council. Uh, Trita, who opposes the agreement with Iran and and what arguments can they possibly uh,
1: put forward? So the main the first thing we have to keep in mind is that this deal was overwhelmingly supported by the entire international community. It got uh, an unanimous vote in the Security Council. There were only three places where the opposition was strong. One was in the office of the Israeli prime minister. Second was in the palace of the House of Saud in Riyadh and then, thirdly, amongst Republicans in Congress. The reasons for their opposition varied. For the Republicans, it was as simple as, this is an Obama deal, and as a result, they are going to be against it, just as much as they have essentially been against everything else that President Obama did. For the Saudis and the Israelis, it was a bit more complex. I explained it in detail in the book, and I conducted interviews with uh, essentially everyone who was involved in this from the Iranian foreign minister to Secretary Kerry to Frederica Mogherini, as well as uh, Israelis and others. Um, for the Israelis, it was very much about the fact that if the U.S. struck any type of a deal with the Iranians, it would lead to Iran's decontainment. It would lead to an end to Iran's isolation and exclusion in the region. And the Israeli fear was that, well, The U.S. will strike this deal, the Iranians will make up with the U.S. on on a whole set of issues they will no longer be fully contained, but it doesn't mean that Iran will change its position on Israel. It does not mean that Israel will not continue to face difficulties from Iran. So this became a key reason as to why the the Israelis then did everything they could to undermine the deal, uh, essentially saying, we're not going to allow the United States to come to terms with Iran if Iran does not also come to terms with Israel. Uh, And there has been a change in Iran's posture on Israel at a minimum. Uh, You don't see the Iranians behaving or or speaking about Israel in the same manner today as they did during the Ahmadinejad years. But uh, it's clearly not sufficient for the Israelis. At the same time, it has to be said, the Israeli security establishment, those who actually were very worried about the nuclear issue, are quite happy with this deal. Uh, it's the political establishment in, in Israel that has seen this as more than just a nuclear issue and also see a clear domestic political angle to this in Israel, in which opposing the United States doesn't make a lot of sense, but for Netanyahu to oppose Obama actually was good politics.
0: And is Iran actually harmful to Israel or threatening to Israel? what What is the problem from Iran in Israel? Well,
1: it, Iran definitely poses a challenge to Israel, but the idea that Iran is an existential threat to Israel um, does not have a tremendous amount of support in the security establishment. It is definitely a line that Netanyahu uses extensively and frequently. But it is not something that um, uh, many others within the security establishment agree with. Even people like Ehud Barak have been on record saying that is uh, laughable. Iran is a threat. It is not an existential threat because to call them an existential threat is to really diminish Israel's own capabilities. And three heads of the Mossad in a row have said this: Iran is not an existential threat. Iran is a challenge. Iran is a threat but not an existential
0: threat. But does the Iranian government th- actually threaten to attack Israel in the way that the U.S. White House uh, threatens to attack Iran or North Korea?
1: No, you don't have those type of threats. You have very vicious statements, of course, in which the Iranians um, uh, question uh, uh, Israel's legitimacy, call, make the prediction that Israel would not exist, and there's a lot of counter threats or warnings in which the Iranians say that if the Israelis attack, Iran will do X, Y, and Z, and uh, Iran will... uh, uh, At one point, the supreme leader in Iran even made a very specific threat saying that if the Israelis attack, Iran will target Haifa. But then, of course, the Iranians are arming Hezbollah. Hezbollah is still at loggerheads with the Israelis. So it is a situation in which both sides are stuck in a security dilemma, uh, and, and they are perceiving threats from the other side. The question is, once there was a deal and the nuclear issue was taken off the table, there was an opportunity for a more inclusive dialogue about security in the region. There was an opportunity for the Israelis to see how Iran's policies, etc., could be changed as it uh, improved its relations with the United States. Instead, the Israelis chose to go in the opposite direction, as did the Saudis, did everything they could to not only kill the deal, but to make sure that they would not be an all-inclusive security dialogue, that there would not be a dialogue that also included Iranians. Instead, they preferred to go back to a scenario in which the U.S. and Iran were essentially lethal enemies. Uh, The Saudis in particular was quite clear. They preferred an Iran that actually had a nuclear weapon but was isolated in the region than one who didn't have nuclear weapons but had a more functioning relationship with the United States.
0: Trita Parsi, you say that the Republicans in Congress opposed and presumably still oppose the deal uh, just because it was an Obama Uh, creation, Uh, yet many of the arguments they made were that Iran was an immediate threat and needed to be attacked, that that the U.S. needed to go to war, Uh, and they tended, as usual, to say such things roughly in proportion to uh, their election funding from war profiteers. Um, Was all of that sort of, uh, you know, rhetoric and the true motivation was just opposition to Obama, or or is there a a drive to war that that infects the U.S. Congress?
1: Oh, without a doubt, there are other aspects involved in this as well, and um, you mentioned that uh, many of them saw a particular profit in war. That is the case. There's also another factor, which is by taking Netanyahu's side against the Democratic President of the United States and the Democratic Party, there was clearly a calculation among some of the Republicans, that they would now out-Israel the Democrats on this issue, uh, be better on Israeli security, in their view, than what the Democrats were, in the hope of increasingly attracting major donors that otherwise were giving to the Democratic Party to have them shift over to the Republican Party. The Republicans have hardliners such as uh, Sheldon Adelson, et cetera. why not have five more of those? Why not do something that would clearly bring more of those people to the Republican side? This has been a long-term effort, and, and the Iran deal was one significant opportunity for them to do so.
0: You, you mentioned Hezbollah. What about all the U.S. accusations that Iran is, the, you know, the biggest war maker, the biggest terrorism backer? I mean, obviously nothing Iran or anyone has done compares to the invasion of Iraq or probably to uh, the overthrow in Libya or the destruction of Yemen and so forth. But, but what, uh, what substance is there to the charges in, in regards to, to Yemen and elsewhere around the region?
1: Well, when it comes to Iran's support for Hezbollah, there's, there's no doubt about that. Iran is, is a major sponsor of Hezbollah, and, and um, Hezbollah and Iran's relations remain very, very close. Um, Iran's role in Yemen is highly overstated, uh, particularly in the beginning when statements were being made that the Iranians are behind uh, uh, the Houthis, etc. At that point, it was simply not true. Their role was very, very limited. Uh, but over time, it has actually grown. Uh, it's almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, and, uh, but when it comes to destabilizing the region or being the, the most dangerous element in the region, there is a tremendous amount of exaggeration and uh, irony in many of these things. Just take a look at the State Department's own um, list of state sponsors of terror uh, or, or, or terrorist organizations. The United States accuses Iran of being the main state sponsor of terror. Yet when you take a look at the State Department's list of terrorist organizations, more than 40 of them are Wahhabi uh, organizations or Salafi organizations with connections to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Only two or three of them are organizations that are either Shia or otherwise connected to Iran. Yet Iran is accused of being the main state sponsor of terror. Fifteen Saudis were behind 9-11. Accusations exist that the Saudi government was not entirely innocent in all of this. Yet the United States is not calling out Saudi Arabia. On the contrary, Trump went to Saudi Arabia and in Riyadh he said we're not here to criticize. Three days later, he's in Brussels, and he had nothing but criticism to America's European allies. So there is a, a tremendous amount of inconsistency and, frankly, um, double standards here. It's not to say that the Iranians are playing uh, a wonderfully um, helpful role in the region. But the United States' um, uh, targeting of Iran uh, and um, uh, turning a blind eye to what the Saudis are doing reveals that there's something much, much more important going on than just um, uh, a fair calling out of uh, parties engaging in terrorism.
0: There there probably is a solution. uh, If you keep talking about that State Department list of terrorist organizations too much, uh, they could uh, stop publishing the list. That would would solve the problem, right?
1: (laughs) That would uh, be one way. <laughs> uh,
0: what, uh, what, about, uh, what about in Syria? What, is, what about Iran's... I mean, this it, is all incredibly hypocritical in that the U.S. is not on its own lists of terrorists and war makers. <laughs> but, but what about Iran's role in, in Syria? Yeah.
1: The Iranians have been supporting of, uh, Assad and played a critical role in ensuring his survival. Uh, which then also means that they are complicit in some of the crimes that the, the, the Assad regime has committed. Uh, at the same time, um, other parties are in great support of some of the opposition figures, and many of the opposition figures have essentially been um, um, succumbed into ISIS or al-Nusra. Uh, and are also responsible for a tremendous amount of crimes. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendously um, complicated picture where there is truly no good guys, in my view. There's no one with any clean hands in that scenario. Uh, and the thing we have to focus on more than anything else is to try to see how the, the bloodshed there can be ended um, Most civil wars rarely go beyond one year. Uh country simply... Lacks the capacity to be able to sustain uh, a warfare against itself for more than that period of time. When they go above one year, it's almost exclusively because outside parties are pouring in arms, money, sometimes also soldiers, and that is certainly the case in in Syria. That is an area in which both the United States, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Iran, Qatar, Saudi, um, uh, Russia, all of them. Uh, have unfortunately played a negative role in my
0: opinion. Yes, indeed. I'd add the United States as well. Um, the The thing is, every several years, or even faster, there seems to be a big push in Washington, D.C. for a war on Iran. I mean, it seems like around... 2007, maybe 2015. Uh, you know, but each time, shouldn't the case be weaker simply because uh, the war was not engaged in last time, and the world did not fall apart, and all of the <laughs> all of the threats did not come true, and we managed okay without the war. I mean, doesn't that weaken the case each next time it's brought up?
1: Uh, it should be, but the issue, of course, also is that. Um, there isn't a strong case for war with Iran in the first place.
0: Well, of course not.
1: Uh, And uh, what you really have here, I think, and, and I write about it extensively in my book, that's part of the reason why the title is called Losing an Enemy. It's about the fact that there are plenty of people in Washington and also folks in Tehran who are more terrified of losing Iran as an enemy or losing the U.S. as an enemy than they are afraid of the actual threat the country could pose. So they do everything they can to prevent any solutions and everything they can to prevent anything that actually could cause the United States to lose an enemy. And for some of them, not all, the real issue is that they want strong American hegemony in the region. If you want strong American hegemony in the region with a very, very strong military presence there, uh, whether Iran is under the current government, whether it's under the current government of the Shah or a future democratic government, you will most likely end up uh, in a conflict with the Iranians, because the Iranians don't want any foreign presence in the region as a whole. And they want this for a selfish reason, because as long as there's no major foreign powers in the region, Iran will be one of the biggest powers.
0: Yeah. and, and- If
1: you want this... You are, that will be your primary objective, which then supersedes all other factors. You will turn a blind eye, and you will ignore the fact that the U.S. and Iran have common interest against ISIS, for instance, because that is secondary to your primary objective of hegemony. It also means that you will turn a blind eye to all of the crimes the Saudis are committing, because at the end of the day, that also is secondary to your primary objective, which is hegemony, and the Saudis don't only want hegemony, they support it. They want American hegemony more than the United States wants American hegemony. That's part of the reason why you have this, this rather bizarre situation in which there's so much focus on Iran and so much negligence and so much turning a blind eye on what the Saudis are doing.
0: I think you're absolutely right. Uh, It also seems that in U.S. politics there is again the desire for profits, for funders and for political gain for uh, heroic war leaders. Uh, And it seems like there is this possibility that after all the bluster directed at North Korea, there could be the substitution of Iran as a target Uh, and I wonder what you think of that possibility and what you think of what that would do to nuclear proliferation to to once again
1: sorry you you broke up there from okay can you
0: repeat do you think it's possible that the united states will turn ter- towards iran as a target for war instead of north korea And do you think that would be damaging to nuclear proliferation to, again, refrain from attacking a nuclear country uh, and attack one that's agreed and complied with uh, a nuclear disarmament agreement?
1: So I I think we're not at a point right now in which we can say that war is around the corner. But there's a couple of steps that the Trump administration is thinking about, and they may take them as early as next month. And that would definitely put us on the path towards a war with Iran. Now, whether the United States goes to war with Iran or if it just walks out of this deal, it will significantly harm not just the U.S.'s ability to strike another non-proliferation deal with North Korea, but frankly, potentially any deal. Because the United States will have been a track record within the last couple of months of having walked out of the Paris Agreement, having walked out of the Iran Agreement, Having started questioning NATO, and as a result, the value of America's signature on the paper on a paper will significantly drop.
0: I I agree. Although I wish it were seriously questioning NATO and and abolishing it. Um, what. Uh... What about, we have just a couple minutes left, what about the, the latest news in the efforts to to ban Muslims in terms of immigration policy? Does this, does this come out of all of these wars? How does it interact with, the, with propaganda around foreign relations?
1: Um, it certainly seems to have uh, some connections there, because once again, if this truly was about security then the United States would have done something to do a better job at screening people who have either visited Saudi Arabia uh, or are Saudi nationals mindful of the fact that 94.1% of all terrorist deaths on U.S. soil have been uh, in, uh, conducted by citizens of Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and UAE. Zero F- Foreign American
0: terrorism, deaths, excluding foreign domestic terrorism. terrorism.
1: Yes, domestic um, Non-zero uh, terrorist deaths on U.S. soil have been conducted by the citizens of the six countries that are targeted by this uh, Muslim ban. So the idea that security is behind this is really, really a stretch. There, even the DHS itself came out with a report and saying that nationality is not a good predictor of terrorism, and as a result, measures of this kind uh... It cannot really be claimed to be helpful towards security. We, what can help explain what has done, to be frank with you, mindful of what we saw, uh, the president's uh, reaction to what happened in, in Charlottesville in my view, um, is that there definitely seems to be a racist component to what is taking place here.
0: Uh, Very much so. Trita Parsi, uh, to be continued at a future date. uh, Trita Parsi's book is Losing an Enemy, Obama, Iran, and the Triumph of Diplomacy. Trita, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you
1: so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you.
0: This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org.